Well, let's uh, let's get started with a word. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your your many and great blessings. And today, we're especially thankful for the blessing of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And we're also especially thankful for the gift of baptism that you've given to Fletcher Toto today. Um, just strengthen and encourage her in her faith, um, given so graciously by you, and help her to always know that you have placed your name on her and brought her into your family. Um, be with us today as we are in our class and as we continue to learn about uh, the gifts that you so greatly desire to give us and the life that you're calling us to. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, just a reminder, being recorded, so don't incriminate yourself or say anything you don't want people to hear. Um, and, and if you do accidentally do something like that, not incriminate yourself, but if you do accidentally say something you don't want on there, let me know. I can edit it out. So, all right. So I had to kind of go back and listen to my one from last time to even remember where we were at because it feels like it's been, I think it has been like a month since we've been together. So uh, the, the last time we talked about the service of the word and that chunk of the divine service. Do you recall that discussion right, mm -hmm. leading up to how back in the day we all would have been standing for two hours as they're reading a lot more than we read today. Um, and a lot of that change is precipitated on the fact that everybody can read, but we discussed that one of the problems of that that really has become a problem in the Christian community in modern day, especially in, in the West, is just because people can read their Bibles doesn't mean they actually do. Right? And so many Christians um, today, all they hear of the scriptures are the three short readings on Sundays. And that's if they go to a church that still does that. There are a lot of churches that either just have one, or they don't have any, or they only use like a, a section of the sermon to read part of the text that they're preaching on. Um, and so um, at Ascension, one of my emphases is going to be um, as you'll see throughout the time you're here, reading the scriptures, right? Um, because we have all this very powerful imagery of what that means for the Christian life and the place that it holds. So we're going to be talking about some of that today, the role of the word of God. Um, not, <clears throat> and last time we covered mostly the context of that in the worship service and the purpose that it plays, okay? So since it has been a little while, Let's do a little recap of that. So what are the three readings called in the service? Epistle. There's an epistle. And what is an epistle? What does that word mean? A letter. A letter. Yep. It's a letter. And actually, today's a good example from our bulletin today, if you still have it. If you open up to the epistle reading, it's the beginning of the epistle, and you can see that it's written like a letter. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And so uh, you also got to see, uh, which I thought was really fun, is the greeting that I normally give you before I preach a sermon is, the, is straight from his greetings from his letters. Grace to you and peace be with you from you know, Christ our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Right? Um, and so in the epistle reading today, that kind of highlights the letter aspect. Right? Now, Paul's not the only one who wrote letters. Peter and John also wrote letters, so these are the letter readings. Uh, which one of the readings is this? First, second, or third? Second. Second. What's our first? Old Testament. Old Testament. Old Testament. There's a few exceptions to that, um, and typically the exceptions are from the book of Revelation. So a few services each year you'll see it say first reading instead of Old Testament reading. 
is occasionally it comes from the New Testament, but most of the time is Old Testament reading, and then our third one is gospel. Right? What's the gradual? That's just a yeah. It's a good question. So um, the gradual, which occurs between the Old Testament and the epistle reading, um, is the response to the reading. Um, so that's the response to the Old Testament reading, and then the epistle response. Um, to get us ready for the gospel, there's something between those typically. Do you remember what that is? Hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah, right? I'm reading the board, guys. I don't know all these things. You're so smart, Janet. <laughs> so the hallelujah in verse. Now, we usually say hallelujah in verse because during Lent, it's just going to be a verse because we dropped the hallelujah. Oh, okay. So the verse is that is the liturgical term for that piece there. Um, and that's the response to the epistle. As what, like it, so it's a general uh, response to God's word and then a preparation going into the gospel reading. And then what's the response to the gospel reading? Praise to you, O Christ. Praise to you. Well, that's the, that's the call and response part. Um, but the liturgical response. What's the next thing that happens? Children's no. message. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's something we do. But that, they're kind of connected. Then the application. Yeah, which is called pretty much everywhere else besides ascension is called the sermon right and um, because almost all the time what is the sermon based on the gospel the gospel right uh, so a big part of what a pastor is called to do is to expound on god's word right and the highlight of the service of the word everything builds up to the gospel so when they were putting these reading sets together in the church year calendar, check out over here, right? So you'll see um, second Sunday after Pentecost, and on here it'll say it says like proper five, and it doesn't display all the readings here, but depending on what lectionary you're doing, they have the readings chosen, right? Um, and the Old Testament and the Epistle are chosen based on their relationship to what is being said in the Gospel reading. That's how those were constructed. Because what is Jesus to these other two? Right? So the Old Testament is prophesying about the arrival of Christ and what he's going to do. Right? So like today in Isaiah was talking about how when Christ comes, he's not coming just for the, the Old Testament people, but he's going to be a light to the nations. Right? Um, and so this light that is revealed in the gospel is the light to the nations talked about in Isaiah. In the Old Testament reading. And then the epistle is written by one of the apostles after Jesus' earthly ministry, referring to the things that he taught. Right? So everything in here points to the gospel, including the sermon. Um, so that, that's the service of the word portion. Now, that's a big part of the worship service of Christians. Um, and it's been a part of the worship service for the people of God even before they were called Christians. Um, this was the typical practice in the synagogue, if you recall from the Gospels, when Jesus is uh, reading from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. Right? He stands up and he reads from the scroll and everybody else listens. Right? And then they get all mad at him because he says today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, but that practice of reading God's word, you even see all the time in the Old Testament. So... Um, the book of Deuteronomy is the second reading of the literal meaning of that, that word, is the second reading of the law, Deuteronomos, 
Namos is the Greek word for law. And in that, the leader of the people of Israel has them all come together, and they all stand and listen to the reading of God's law. All right, so that's, there's always been the theme of God has something to say to his people. He'll either speak it through a prophet or through a judge, a leader that he's called. And then in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Um, so that's a common um, and central theme to our relationship with God, is that he speaks and we listen. Um, sometimes not so great, sometimes better, sometimes not so great. Right? So, um, <clears throat> so if you want to open up in your small catechisms, page 354, that was the reading God's word appendix that I wanted you guys to look at. Um, Hopefully you didn't read it too soon after last class because you've probably forgotten it by now because mm-hmm. that was like a month ago. But we're going to kind of go through this here. Okay. I'm going to read that intro paragraph and then we're going to kind of summarize each of these big points. And if you have any questions while we're going through that, let me know. Reading the Bible can seem daunting. Its words, however, are the very words of God and the words of life. God wants us to hear, understand, and believe his word, and his spirit works through it to enable us to do so. The first challenge in reading God's word is to simply open the book. How many of you guys have trouble doing that? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, before you know it, you look at your Bible, and it's been days, weeks, maybe months since you've opened it. Um, that happens to me, too. Um, The devil delights in distracting us with other activities or priorities that may seem more urgent, exciting, or important. So resist and frustrate the devil. Sit down and open your Bible, keeping the following truths in mind. Okay, so a big part of um, the life here at Ascension that uh, you're probably beginning to see is an emphasis on contact, regular contact with God's Word. Um, I believe that's probably the single greatest problem facing the Western Church, is that regardless of denomination, the people in the pews are not reading their Bible very often. Um, the elders and I are reading a book called Built on the Rock right now. It's, it's uh, written by a guy who works with the Ambassadors of Reconciliation. And what they do is they're the guys that you call to come in when you're having a fight in a congregation and they can't get through it themselves. So they come in. And they lead the leaders through Bible studies and get them to learn about what reconciliation really means and to begin doing the steps that will cause that. Okay? So when they show up, not good. Right? Things aren't good. And he's been the guy who wrote the book, I think he's been doing that for like 25 years. Okay? He's been to a lot of churches in dress. And he said the one commonality among every single church that I dealt with that was dealing with this that needed people like me to come in was that their connection to the scriptures was like less than 15% of the congregation. So most people had no idea what the Bible said about most things, which is, and he said, which makes sense if you're coming into a church and they're not handling disagreement like Christians, it makes sense that it's because they don't really know how, because they don't know how God has instructed them to do it because they didn't read. Um, And so one of the examples he gave, which was really I mean, surprising was um, they usually meet with the elders first. They met with, at this church, met all the elders, there are eight elders, 
And he says, all right, open your Bibles to Romans. And one of the elders couldn't find Romans in his Bible. Oh, okay? man. So, and this is an elder right. at their church. Right? So you can see that the people of God are only as good as their connection to God's word in their lives. And so my, one of my constant encouragements to you and constant calls to you is going to be to be in the Word, right? Um, and those things will begin to make more sense to you. And it will do things to you. Um, being in the Word does stuff. Um, and, it's, and sometimes it's not what you're expecting, right? It will always be good, but it won't always be pleasant. One of the ways that my friend described it, one of my buddies, a pastor in Iowa, we were talking about this, and he said, that it will wake up your conscience, which has consequences. It has good consequences, but they're not always pleasant consequences. Because maybe you're living your life in such a way that it only works if your conscience is asleep or not really paying attention. And you open up the Bible and you start reading, your conscience comes alive and you're receiving the Holy Spirit. And now all of a sudden you have some decisions to make because you can't any longer do the thing that you were once doing or spend your time the way you were spending your time. And so, like, it's good and serious business opening up your Bible. But it's good, right? So I always like the way C.S. Lewis talks about this, particularly in the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when they talk about Aslan, and uh, they're like, oh, is he safe? And he says, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. He's the king of the jungle. But he's good, right? And so... Um, and the, another way he expresses that, and I think maybe I've shared this with you guys, is the idea that uh, you invite Jesus into your life, or you think you do, and you think that he's going to do certain things. And he uses the image of a little cottage in the woods that's kind of falling apart. He says, your life's in, in, in distress, and, and you think, well, Jesus is going to come and fix that up. And he probably will fix up some of the things you're seeing, the leaky roof and the, the broken pipes and the messed up chairs and all that good stuff. But then he's going to start doing a bunch of stuff to you that you weren't expecting because he's God and you're not. And it's going to, some of it's going to be painful because he has a different plan for you than you have for yourself. And the beautiful image he ends up with is he says, you just wanted to be a fixed-up cottage in the woods, but he intends to build you in a palace because he's going to come and live in it. Right? And so he's throwing out wings and putting up towers and taking down walls. Right? And so like when you read your Bible... Like you're, you're interacting with the God of the universe. Now he loves you and he's good, but you're not in control. So, so that's what it's like to be in God's word. And you get the beautiful image in Psalm one that the the one who meditates on the law of God day and night is like a tree planted by streams of living water. The streams of living water are the word of God, and we are the tree, right? I think we talked about this last time a little bit. Like if a tree is not by water, what happens to the tree? It dies. What happens to the fruit it bears? It bears no fruit. It can't bear fruit, even if it wants to, because it doesn't have the thing with it that is necessary. So my approach here is going to be, um, be in the Word. I really want to, after we're done here, a new member class, when you guys are members, the first Bible study is going to be a big one on worship that everybody's going to. Because... I can't even begin to tell you to talk to your coworkers about Jesus and inviting them to church when the roots of your own faith are not really there for you. Right? And so um, that's happening on Sunday morning. That's happening when you read the Word. Right? 
And so those things are what we're focusing on right now at Ascension to get in order to emphasize, to elevate and raise up in the lives of the members of this church. And the other things will then happen. Just like when a tree gets itself planted by some water, without even really seeking to do so, what will it do? Flourish. It's going to flourish. It's going to bear fruit. <clears throat> but we can't do that apart from what God is giving to us. So that's why when we talked about the service of the word, and it's going to be the emphasis again when we talk about the service of the sacrament, the emphasis on God is giving and we are receiving. Because all that we have and are that is good is from him. Okay? Any questions about that so far? Okay. So number one, the Bible is about forgiveness and life in Jesus. So um, how many of you have written a paper? Okay, when you write a paper, what's one of the first things you have to come up with? Subject. The subject. And then before you can really begin to write much of on the subject, you have to come up with something else. Outline. And you get this. You need this before your outline. Okay. You have to do research. So, huh? You have to research. Research, but what's going to drive your research? Something you're interested in. A theme or a goal, right? A theme or a goal. Right, because the, the subject may be firecrackers, but there's a lot of stuff you could write about firecrackers. There's a lot of stuff you could write about forgiveness. Right, you want a particular theme, and that's going to drive how you build, how you do your research, what what books you're going to read, what direction you're trying to take things. Right. So when you read the scriptures, the scriptures has a goal and a theme. Right. The goal and the theme of the scriptures is the forgiveness and life that we are given from God through Jesus. That's why in the service of the word, the Old Testament and the epistle refer to Christ's teachings in the gospel. That's the purpose. Right? So the reason that's a helpful thing to have in your mind when you're reading is it's sometimes you encounter things in the scriptures by themselves that are very troubling to you. Now, just because you know the theme is forgiveness and life in Jesus doesn't mean that all of the sting of what is a difficult saying of the scriptures is taken away, but it puts it in its proper context. And I think context comes up in one of these other numbers. Right? And you'll notice sometimes when I preach, I did this today, the scripture verses that we're focusing on, I try to put them in the context of where they occur in the book. So today, like I referred to the tongue twister part at the beginning of John 1 that sets up this revelation. Right? It connects Jesus, the Lamb of God, to being the Word made flesh, to being present at the very beginning. Right? The Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right? And now that Word has been made flesh. Jesus dwells among us. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the Right. So that's context. Okay? Um, and so for us, when we read the Bible, it's all pointing to who? Jesus. Right? So Jesus and what he teaches provides the context for the rest of the thing. Okay. So that's why we still read the Old Testament, even though there's some things in the Old Testament we don't do anymore, because the Old Testament points to Christ. Okay. So it's important to keep that theme um, present. And it prevents a couple of things. One, it can prevent being overly judgmental. Right? Because it isn't about the morality of God and his wrath for those who fail to meet it. When Christ comes, the direction of that changes. Now, his judgment is still just and his wrath is still deserved. But in Christ, 
The context is provided that the wrath is no longer directed at who? At us. Yeah. Who is it directed at instead? Jesus. Right. So you see how that context of Christ and what he does and teaches helps us understand the judgment. Okay. It also prevents us from... I can spell today. <laughs> wow. I mean, no wonder you can't spell that. Jeez. Moralistic Please. therapeutic deism. Okay. Or you can, you can call it MTD for short if you want. So moralistic therapeutic deism is argued by some to be the most common religion of the West. And this is... It prizes um, niceness and comfort. Okay? Um, it views the Bible as primarily a guidebook on how to live correctly. Okay? Um, we do not believe that. Okay? We believe the Bible is the living and active word of God that literally creates faith and saves through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a book about rules of right and wrong. Okay. It does contain those things, and we're called to, to God's goodness and to away from things that he considers wicked. Right? So the moral part is in there, but what this does is, I'll give you an example. Um, everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. What's the story of David and Goliath about? Weaker beaten is stronger. The weaker beaten the stronger. But he also had God He wasn't the weaker, so right. Yeah. <laughs> that God can use anyone weak through their weakness. Yeah. That to, that God is sovereign overall, right? That He is. Right, because what is the thing that sets David on the path towards Goliath in the first place? Do you remember? Oh, well, God is with him, but what does he hear? He hears them um, taunting the people of God and and, and God, God himself. himself. And, and David looks around, and no one is doing anything in response. Yeah. Right, and so the Lord was with him, throws the rock, and he kills him. Right. Um, now. The reason that it isn't about the weaker versus stronger is if you do any research on on slingers they have the advantage over infantry. And they can hit rabbits at like 75 yards with stones like the size of a fist. So it's not as, it's not as uh, miraculous that David slings a rock and kills a large infantryman as it first seems. Right? So if I'm a person who's reading the Bible from this perspective, and most people who do this, they don't even realize they're doing it because it's become so common. They use themes like overcoming the giants in your life. Have you ever heard something like that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Slaying your giants. Right? Slaying your giants. Yeah. Right? Because what, and what you're doing when you turn a Bible story into this is you implicitly are not reading as if it really happened and that its primary purpose is some moral lesson for you. <clears throat> Okay. Now, often there is a moral lesson to be learned in the in the scriptural accounts, but they weren't written for that purpose. Like, 
God actually was with David and defeated Goliath and drove his enemies before him. And he didn't do all that so that you could overcome the giants in your life. Right? That's not the purpose of that reading. And that's not what God is communicating to us there. So what this does is it, it boils down the scriptures. It takes away all of the divine and supernatural aspects of the Bible and turns it into a moral guidebook of lessons for your life. Okay. Um, and usually the people who go that route, they also get rid of all the, the nasty different things. Like having to hate your father and your mother and follow after Jesus. Right. Or that you can do communion in an incorrect way that's bad for you if you do that. Right, they, they get rid of that stuff because, well, God is a God of love, and he just wants to teach me some things, but he loves me, and it's all going to be okay. Right? So it's an overly simplistic view. So the context of the scriptures being about Christ, about forgiveness and life in him, prevents us from turning it into just a book of the law where we judge others for failing to meet the standard of God. Because what's, what's the problem with that? What will happen to us if we do that? I'm going to judge lest you be judged. Well, yeah. But what does that mean? That we're not remembering how much we were forgiven. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's one of the indictments that Jesus has against the Pharisees. He says, you're placing a burden upon the people that you yourselves cannot bear. Right? You will be crushed under the weight of your own judgment because you're under the same sentence of condemnation. Right? So it is never the place of Christians to judge like salvation um, things regarding uh, sins, particularly for people who are not a member of their community because they have no faith in Christ. Right? Now, as a member of the community, you are to judge according to God's word. But again, the judgment is in the context of the grace and forgiveness of Christ. Right. So we talked a little bit of that, I think, with the Office of the Keys and Excommunication. That at the end of the Matthew 18 setup, when he says treat them like tax collectors and sinners, he doesn't mean throw dirt in their face and throw them out the window. What does he mean? Witness to them about me, right? You're supposed to treat them now as somebody who clearly doesn't know the gospel. And so in the, in the life of a Christian, those people then become an object of more grace and more compassion to draw them back to what it's really about, forgiveness and life in Jesus. Because the whole reason we're concerned about this in the first place is that something they're doing is separating them from that. We don't want that for them. That's so seldom seen. Do what? That's so seldom seen. <laughs> and I think you trace that, you can trace that back to no one's reading their Bible. Right? Um, because the trust to, the, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to say that to people you care about, particularly if if it's somebody in your congregation or in your family that's doing something you think is not good for them, um, because you have to trust that God is is with you in that and that he's working towards the good because it may not seem good right then and there. Right? Just like when Jesus says, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it's a great thing, but then they try to throw him off a cliff. Right? Um, so people aren't always ready to hear what God has to say. Um, and so, But we are called nonetheless to bring his word to bear, right? But always keeping in mind that the purpose of bringing the word to bear is the forgiveness of life of Jesus. Um, okay, <clears throat> number two, scriptures interpret scripture. So this is really getting into the context things. Um, 
So we'll read a little bit of that. So context is essential for understanding language. When overhearing one end of a phone conversation, it's difficult to fully understand the words you hear because you miss the other half. In the same way, a faithful interpretation of Scripture depends on giving the Bible a full hearing. When reading it, I need to ask, what is the context here? How do other passages of the Bible clarify my understanding of this passage? So number one, the Scripture immediately surrounding the passage is a key aspect of the context. That's usually what you'll hear me say in the sermon. Um, number two, other scriptures written by the same author also help in interpretation. Uh, so I think we talked a little bit about, I can't remember if we did or not, but um, like Matthew, in the book of Matthew, he uses this Greek word 37 times. 35 times it's used in this one way. And the two times that we don't really know, it could be, it could be that way or it could be another, which one do we go with? We go with the one he's already used 35 mm -hmm. times. Right, because he's obviously established a pattern of the way he uses that word. Just like when you, and at first it sounds a little weird, but when you think about it in your own conversation, you have phrases or the ways that you say things that without the context of you are hard to, to interpret. But somebody who knows you knows what you mean when you say that because you say it that way all the time. Right, so that's essentially what that is. Uh, number three, related scriptures elsewhere in the Bible are also helpful. <laughs> So um, the best example for number three there is uh, an easy way to think of that is that clearer passages help understand unclear passages, right? So uh, famously in James chapter 2, verse 5, he says, faith without works is dead, right? And at first, when you read that as a Lutheran, you want to toss it out of the scriptures because you're like, Works righteousness is bad. That can't be right. right. What does he mean by that? Right. And it seems like at least a contradiction because Paul says the exact opposite many, many times. And so the way that we work through some of those unclear passages, because it could, it could be that what James is talking about, and this is what I believe he's saying, isn't that your works create your faith, but that with the tree imagery I was giving you, that one of faith creates faith good works right. so it's a faith first good works follow right. um, it's not a good works create faith uh, and the reason that we believe that interpretation is the more sound one is because Paul speaks so clearly in many many other places and Jesus does as well about the free nature of the gift of grace that he's, he's offering right. uh, it's not the sick who need a doctor but, but or it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick right. Jesus says that he also says that uh, while uh, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So uh, we use those clearer passages to make sense of passages that are unclear to us. Okay? Now that doesn't mean that we just make things up. Right? It has to be within the possible interpretive um, spectrum, let's say. So linguistically, sometimes when you say certain things, like, um, well, here's a good example. How are you? What does that mean? What's the question? How are you? That phrase, what does it mean? Mostly people say it just like to say hi. Yeah, it could mean hi. That's one possible interpretation. What's another? They want to know. I actually want to know, right? <laughs> I guess.
guess I don't usually want to know. <laughs> I'm kidding. How are you? But don't tell me. <laughs> Unless it's really short. Yeah. Right. I'm in a hurry. And, I, and I, maybe I've shared this with you, but when I was uh, a new guy from Germany who was doing some foreign exchange stuff here, mm-hmm. and he asked me about that. He said, do people actually want to know how I'm doing? Because people he doesn't know are asking him that all the time. And in Germany, they don't say that. They say, yeah. they say good day, good morning, good evening, or just hi. Yeah. Right. So... Um, so this is an example of one phrase that could feasibly mean two different things. Right? So there's a lot of that in the scriptures, particularly when you're dealing with ancient dialects of languages that nobody speaks anymore. Right? You have to, like, through a lot of research and through um, inheriting meanings, they, they know essentially how certain words are used in the context of those languages. Right? So in German, the phrase, how are you, only means this. It doesn't mean that, right? So, uh, so we use all of those aspects of language to help understand the scriptures. Okay. Any questions about that? Okay. Number three: Testament interprets Testament. Uh, so this is getting back a little bit to uh, essentially the connections I was making for you from the Old Testament to the New. Right? That we believe the Bible is about whom? Jesus. Jesus. So, what, who's the Old Testament about? Jesus. Jesus. Right? And so. Um, so the, we interpret certain things in, light, in the Old Testament in light of what is shared in the New Testament. Because sometimes Jesus even says, like he does with the example of Isaiah, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, that, that was about me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then we take our cue from that, and Jesus says, this is what's going on, or Paul says, this is what's going on. Then all of a sudden now we know what that meant, what it's referring to. Right? Now sometimes in the Old Testament they have multiple meanings again. So it could be they're talking about the fall of um, Jerusalem, right? It could be what's called a proleptic prophecy, which has an immediate meaning and then a meaning far in the future, an apocalyptic meaning. Uh, could be referring, so there's some prophecies that talk about the fall of Jerusalem, and it is referring to, um, like when Jesus tells his disciples, not one stone will be left upon another. He's not just referring to the end. He's also referring to um, when the Romans destroy the city of Jerusalem. So there's 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 a lot of there's a lot going on in there, um, but that, those are some of the principles we use to connect those. <clears throat> you also got to see a little bit of the, the testament interpreting testament in the baptismal liturgy today, because uh, in the flood prayer, right? How do we now see the the? Um, so this this is really a cool connection. So the great deliverance act in the Old Testament is what? Parting of the Red Sea. Well, that's part of it, oh. but the, the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery into Egypt to the promised land, right? Your, the great deliverance of, of all people is your freedom from slavery to sin to your promised inheritance in heaven, right? So we look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They're, carried, they're brought out of their slavery by a mighty hand. We are brought out of our slavery by a mighty hand, the hand of Jesus. And then they enter into their journey to the promised land through water, we are baptized through water, and that water has a destructive and a creative element. It destroys the foes pursuing the people of God, and in our case, the sinful flesh, right? And it brings new life to God's people. It preserves their life, right? As baptism brings us into a new creation as a child of God, right? And then right now, we're in the wandering in the desert period, waiting for 
the arrival of our promised land, and then what do they then again go through before they get their promised inheritance? The river of yeah, the river of Jordan. They go through water again, right? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit connects kind of both those events, the destruction of the pursuers and the receiving of the inheritance, the promised. Right? Um, so we now understand those things to be foreshadowing of what Christ does through baptism, now through the church. Um, so those sorts of connections are made. Okay, number four, words do things. And now I realize why I'm thinking I said all this before. I taught it in my confirmation class. Okay, um, so words do things. Whoever came up with the phrase, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me, is an idiot. Okay? Um, that's not true. Uh, and many of you probably know that firsthand. Right? Uh, a, a good example to illustrate the truth of this, if it's some random stranger says to you, you're ugly, it maybe stings a little bit, but you're like, Who, whatever, I don't even know who that is. And maybe he's a crazy person. If your dad says that to you, it, it does something else entirely. Right? So words do things, they have power. Right? Um, even, even the simplest things like, uh, well, today's a good example, right? Behold. If I, be, if I say behold like that and point, what are you going to do? Look. You're going to look, right? Or if your classmate says, oh, man, this smells horrible. Smell it. What are you going to do? He smells. Right? Even though it makes no sense because words do things. Okay? Um, so we, because we believe words do things, they don't just convey information, but they actually create action. Um, that is how we understand the Bible to work as well. Um, on and probably not on, on a whole other level as well. So the question is not simply or subjectively what does this passage mean to me? Okay, And that's an important distinction. That's something that's taught in school right now. Um, I remember I had to write a feminist critique of the Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, which was anachronistic on so many levels. Right? Uh, what my teacher was asking me was to read our current interpretation of something that didn't even exist when he wrote this play and interpreted it in light of it, okay? Um, so if I do that, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm essentially saying, here's what this play meant to me, or here's what I think it means, regardless of what Shakespeare thought it meant, right? And, you know, you can do that a little bit with regular books. You can say, like, here's my reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, if you've ever written anything, you don't just sit down and throw a bunch of words on a page with no intention of where they're going. You wouldn't be able to write a comprehensible book unless you have a theme, right? You actually want to tell people something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the goal of the reader of the scriptures is to figure out what the author, namely God, wants to tell us. So the question, what does this mean to me, is irrelevant. at least in the sense of it being determinative of what it actually means. Now, you can say that in terms of, here's what I got out of it, and I might say, that's great, but that's actually not what this passage is telling us. Right? Which is why, when you go into ministry as a pastor, they spend a lot of time teaching you Greek and Hebrew. Because our goal is not just to say, here's what I think this says. Our goal is, here's what God is, is telling us. Here's what he intends us to hear from us. Which is why when I preach, I don't try to. I try not to stray far from the words of the text, because if I get too far off into my own things, I'm doing you a disservice. Because you didn't come to hear Adam Thompson's opinions about life. 
there are things that are written that lead you in the wrong direction. Yeah. In the Lord's Prayer. What do you mean? We ask him, lead us not into temptation. Yes, yes. Well, you could strike that out of the prayer, and the prayer has more meaning. What do you mean? Well, lead us not into temptation. You're talking about to God. That never occurred to him that he would lead anybody into temptation. Well, so... Let me read the. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good point. That, that is a good um, point. Luther actually addresses that in his meaning, uh, because that's that's true. What you're saying is true. Um, so his what does this mean to the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is and lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one, but we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us, so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us. Right. So it's it's an it's a we understand it to be a prayer of protection from him to guard us from temptation. But yeah, he's not going to tempt us to do wrong. You're right Which about that. Which is what that. he's saying. Yeah. 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 Uh, don't you think that a bunch of the um, probably cults and things come about from grabbing onto just certain little parts? Yes. And, yep. Yeah. So like I think they're actually. I don't know why they're still doing it. They're making a new Left Behind movie. Oh. Um, and those books were all based off of the idea of rapture. Yeah. And rapture is in like two verses in all of scripture. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no compelling scriptural reason to think that that's going to be like the standard practice of Judgment Day that they're just going to be gone. Yeah. Right? Uh, that people are... Uh, so there's... I don't really want to open up that can of worms because that has a lot to do with like dispensations. And oh, sure. That's a whole that's other. A, that's a very deep rabbit hole. Pre-millennial. Um, yeah. Um, I'd be happy to chat with you about that on on your own time if, if you're interested. But um, And I'll probably do a class on it at some point. But I think, like you said, it is such a huge thing with Scripture. What is God saying to us? Not what does it mean to me? Because that's, right. that's yeah. two totally different things. Right. Maybe. Now the other uh, <clears throat> the other aspect of this that's really important for the words "do things" um, is can be illustrated by the answering of a question, which is, "How did you come to believe in Jesus?" Well, you hear the word, and the Holy Spirit brings you to faith. Very good. Very good. Right. Our knee-jerk reaction to that question is, well, like, what he said to me made sense, and so I believed him. Um, but that's actually not the case, we believe. From the scriptures, it's, it's clear that faith is a gift that is given, and it's given through the word. So that's the, that's the additional layer of what the holy scriptures do that regular words don't, right? is that it actually creates faith in God. Right? And so... The reason I'm highlighting that is it means that our approach to evangelism is a very different approach than most places. Our approach to evangelism is the sharing of God's word. It isn't in finely worded argumentation about why someone ought to believe in God. Because it wasn't reasoned arguments that created your faith. It was the Holy Spirit that did that through the hearing of God's word. Does that make sense? 
Now, that's actually a big relief if understood properly because it means who's doing the hard stuff? God, right? Your job is simply to repeat the things that he's given to you, right? Um, and so uh, whether that is in the reading of Scripture for somebody, maybe they're, maybe somebody is one of your friends who maybe they're not Christian, but they come to you and they're, when they're in trouble and they say, how do you deal with this? And they say, when I have stuff like this going on, I read the scriptures. Can I read a couple passages for you? Um, here's here's one of my favorites that I've used many times when I've been in trouble or, or been frustrated or whatever it is that they're coming to you about. Or it can just be the lived word that's coming out through you that's pointing to Jesus. You know, why did you treat me this way? I treated you terribly. Why did you not treat me terribly in return? Right. Well, here's why. And all those sorts of things. Rather than apologetics has its place. And I like apologetics. Which is the, the reason defense of faith. That's primarily for two purposes. One is the shoring up of those who already believe. So if somebody says to you, well, you just believe in Jesus because that's what your parents taught you and you haven't really thought it through. And you can think, actually, no, I've thought it through quite a bit. And it makes a lot of sense to me in a lot of different ways. And so, so it's helpful in that regard. The other way it's helpful is that some people are told that believing in Jesus is like a nonsense voodoo leap of faith blind thing that when you're dumb you believe and when you're smart you don't right? well if somebody's got a barrier like that that's been put up for them apologetics can at least convince them okay I may not really know what this is about but this person's clearly not a moron right? but none of those things actually create faith okay? um, so if you have a family member or a friend who doesn't believe the two best things you can do for them is pray because you're bringing their case, you're pleading your case to the king, right? And he's the one that actually does the thing about it. And two is share God's word, either in your own words or in his with them, whatever you're given the opportunity, right? Um, and beyond that, you just live as if uh, Jesus is there helping you figure out the right thing to do for different people. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so it relieves a lot of that pressure. So, uh, number five. God, the Holy Spirit, helps us. So, one of my favorite passages uh, in the scriptures, I think, is in John chapter 6, I believe, um, or maybe it's 16, um, is when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you, and he will cause you to remember everything that I have said to you. Um, and so, very specifically saying that, like, you're not, like, and you can see this in the disciples' reaction to what Jesus says and does prior to Pentecost, prior to his death on the cross. They don't really understand what he's doing, right? Even to the point where Peter sometimes tries to oppose what he's doing because he doesn't, he, and because maybe he gets more of it than he wants to, right? Well, you got to go die? Uh-uh, Right? I'm not going to let you do that. And then he says, get out of my way, Satan. Right? Um, so the, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit helps us understand. Right? So there are, um, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, the gospel reading ended with Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? Or it, sometimes it says, those who have eyes to see will see. Right? Uh, what that's referring to is, the aid of the Holy Spirit in opening the eyes and ears of those who hear God's word. Right? That's the act, that's the work that he does. Um, so we can't understand apart from the Holy Spirit. Now this gives us a couple of things, and we'll close with this. 
Um, this tells us, one, that I shouldn't listen, however smart they are, to somebody about the Bible who doesn't believe in it. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that as a way of discounting argumentation or just covering your ears and being naive. I'm saying that as there's a crucial part of understanding they do not have if they don't believe it. They haven't been given the understanding of the Holy Spirit. Which is often why if you've seen Christians portrayed in books or in movies, you can almost always tell if the person who wrote that is a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. Because they'll tell you something about Christians and you're like, I've never experienced that before. Or I don't know anybody who thinks that. Right, um, And the reason of that, that occurs is because they don't have faith. They haven't been given the understanding of the Holy Spirit. Um, so their eyes and ears have not been opened. Right, And that's not something that you and I can do. That's only something that God can do through his word. And so our job is to, to do that, right? to share his word. Um, so it's also that the other thing that that helps us do is um, when you're reading the scriptures... Don't rely on your own intelligence to make sense of everything. Okay? Um, one of the things that, that I would encourage you to do when you read the scriptures is begin in prayer. And the prayer should reflect some sort of humility with engaging with God's word and asking that he reveals his wisdom to you. Something along those lines. Right? You're engaging with God's word and you're understanding that he is revealing things to you. And we don't always get what he's saying. And so even with training and Greek and Hebrew knowledge, like that's, that covers one side of things. It doesn't cover the work the Holy Spirit does. And so we pray for that. Um, and he wants us to do that. So that's kind of the funny thing about prayer, right? He wants us to pray for things that he's going to give us anyways, right? If I don't pray that the Lord's will be done, is his will going to be done? Yeah, it is. That's God's will. It gets done, right? Um, but... He wants us to ask for those things. Mm -hmm. um, so just like when you're feeding your children a meal, are you not going to feed them if they don't say thank you or please? No, but you want them to do that because it, it conveys the, the things that you want them to learn about where that comes from. right? Mm -hmm. So just for us, a lot of times our prayer, especially the parts of the Lord's Prayer, are um, humble pleas that are, you can think of them in terms of like things that are creating the right spirit within us for our benefit, God's going to give it regardless. Right. Um, <clears throat> okay. Any questions about any of the things we covered or just in general the, the reading of God's Word? One of the things that I've learned in my few years here <laughs> in this earth, yeah. before you reach a conclusion on anything, huh? evaluate the source. Yep. That's and very wise. Whether it's in your own mind or or whether I'm listening to you, uh -huh. yeah. Uh, where where do you come from? Where or anything like that? Yeah. Uh, I find that uh, listening to world news is difficult to believe what most of them say because you don't know where it's coming from. On one side or the other, yeah. and, and you can't evaluate. Yeah, where they came from to begin with. Yeah, yeah, and I and I actually that's a great point. I I tell this to confirmation students in particular, and I think I probably said this to you at the beginning of the class, but it's worth reiterating. Don't just believe me because I say things, right? No. 
I'm held to the same standard and authority that you are, which is God's word. So a congregation is fully within its prerogative to tell a pastor, like if they think he's doing something against God's word, that he shouldn't do that. Right? Because they're not saying of their own authority, they're not usurping the pastor's authority or whatever. They're saying, the thing that you derive your authority from, you've stepped out of. Mm-hmm. Right? And you need to get back in that. Right? Um, so that's, that, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Um, and uh, the motive of the person who's telling you is also a good thing to know as well, which is what you're kind of referring to, I think, with the news. If somebody has like an ulterior motive, you need some further information to say, okay, I believe you or not, right? Just because I know that you have a stake in the outcome of this, right? So in some ways, it's sort of interesting. I, you consider sometimes as a pastor saying, I don't care whether you join my church or not, right? And you consider saying that because you want to dispel the idea that I'm only telling you what you want to hear so that you become a member of my church. And I don't believe in that. I want you to know what you're getting into, and that it is the greatest of all things. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to always be pleasant. It's not going to be a, on your terms. Because you're interacting with God. It's going to be on his. And that's what we do here. We try to best as we can understand what he wants us to do. And try and do that. Right? All the while living in the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. For when we fail. Mutually stirring one another up to good works. Pointing each other back to Jesus. And all that good stuff. Okay. Um, all right. <clears throat> Next time, we'll do the what is worship um, appendix, which is 358 and 359. You probably already read that. Um, but read it again. Take some notes. There will be less of a long pause between classes. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> I'm also going to – so we'll do half the class on that. The other half of the class is going to be on the transition part of the worship service from the service of the word to the service of the sacrament, which is the offering and the offertory. And there's some really interesting history there and, and kind of hopefully we'll bring to light some of the purpose behind why we do that. So if you kept your, your bulletin from today, keep it in your catechism for next week uh, because the third Sunday of the month has the most of the historic liturgy in it, so there's lots of pieces to reference there. Uh, if you don't, if you didn't keep a copy, we have the secretary in our class here. She has the file, so she can print you one uh, for next week. So just send an email to the office if you want a, a copy printed for next week. Okay. Three fifty-eight and three fifty-nine. Yep. Or, or look up in the recycling bin. <laughs> or you can do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So let's close with the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, have a good week.